Well, good morning. Morning. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. As we look in John chapter 10 today, see great comfort for our hearts and our souls because we, like sheep, are prone to wander. But Jesus, the good shepherd, keeps us safe in his hands always. Nothing can snatch us from his hand. We can't even wander out of it. (laughs) He's got us. So as we continue in John chapter 7 today, we will continue to see what it means for us that Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. You remember uh, he had healed the man born blind in chapter 9. And then he confronted the religious leaders and exposed their spiritual blindness. Our text today begins a new section in the chapter, in chapter 10, but it follows closely to what was before. In the first part of John 10, we see Jesus in the form of a servant. He gains entrance to the sheepfold by the gatekeeper opening to him. He is the door into God's presence, verse 9. He is the one who gives life, gives his life for his sheep. He lays down his life for his sheep, verse 11. He's in the place of obedience and subjection to the commandment of the Father, verse 18. Now there's a a contrast, though, in the second half of John chapter 10. Here Jesus presents himself as the one given sovereign right to give eternal life to his own, verse 28. As one who has almighty power so that none can pluck or snatch his own out of his hand. He is one with the Father and is the Son of God. This passage is really one of the main climaxes of the entire book. Let's look at John chapter 10, starting at verse 22. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. I just want to pause there for a minute and get the context, get the scene. A month or so has gone by since the scene in our text last week. The scene in our our last text started in chapter 7 at the time of the Feast of Booze. The feasts are a central part of of the story that's being played out here in John's narrative. The feasts are meant always to point to Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior. And here, you know, the last section of text was at the Feast of Booze, around October time frame in the year. The time now shifts to December and the Feast of Dedication. Now, the Feast of Dedication is the Jewish celebration of Hanukkah. So here we have reference to the the holiday of Hanukkah uh, in the Bible. It's the day in which they celebrate the Israelite victory over the Syrian leader Antiochus Epiphanes, who persecuted Israel and desecrated the Jewish temple. He set up a pagan altar in the place of the altar of God. The Jews fought a guerrilla war against Antiochus, known as the Maccabean Revolt. You can read about that in the book of Maccabees. It's in the Apocrypha, the kept secret books. (laughs) But you can go find one of those 
And you can read all about it uh, in the book of Maccabees. They freed the temple and the land from its oppression and restored the temple on December 25th. Interesting date, date there, isn't it? <laughs> the celebration is also known as the Feast of Lights because of the lighting of lamps and candles in homes to celebrate the event. And there's all kinds of stuff that went along with that, too. You can read about it. So that's, that's kind of the scene where they are. They're celebrating the, the, the Feast of Dedication. Jesus is in the temple. And notice John notes it was winter. The mention of winter at this point, I think, is a very powerful thing. It has powerful meaning. I think it, it brings some solemnness to the book at this point. It's winter. The chapter closes the first main section of the book. From this point on, the Lord no longer teaches before the religious leaders. His ministry, his public ministry, was almost over. So you can imagine, it's winter, it's cold, it's gray, perhaps, it's solemn. The words of Jeremiah 8.20 apply with direct and solemn force, I think, here. The words of Jeremiah 8.20 say, The harvest is finished, the summer is gone, the people cry, yet we are not saved. That is the scene that we're going to see here in Solomon's portico or porch with the Lord Jesus. There's a season now of coldness and barrenness as an introduction to what comes next. Now, Jesus is teaching in the cover part of the temple. It's called Solomon's Colonnade. This was the place that Christians gathered early in the book of Acts after Jesus rose from the dead. You can read about that early in the book of Acts. They proclaimed the gospel there. They actually had great fellowship there in the book of Acts. But here now, though, Jesus is being confronted and the people oppose him strongly. Here now, he is despised and rejected by men, as we are told in Isaiah 53. Look at verse 24. It says, so the Jews gathered around him. And said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Here's the gang. They're all around him. They gathered around him. They're, they've encircled him. He's in the middle. You can imagine the scene. How long, Jesus, will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. It's almost like they, they could be saying, how long are you going to annoy us, Jesus? How long are you going to annoy us? Now, this, this is clearly the language of unbelief. After all this time and after all that they had seen and heard, they still did not believe. It just really shows the hopelessness of their condition. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you did not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. So here's the connection back to what we read last time. You are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. 
Now we're going to pause here and really dig into this section. So Jesus answers their confrontational question. And he basically tells them, not only did I tell you, but look at the works I've done. Both his words and his actions bear witness that Jesus is the Son of God and the Messiah. He's been showing them, he's been telling them all along, yet they still don't believe. And he knows they don't believe. And he's basically telling, look, if you don't believe in me based on what I say, then take a look at what I'm doing. Remember all that Jesus has done up to this point. He heals the sick. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The lame walk. The blind see. The gospel is preached to the poor. And in the next chapter, the dead will be raised up. He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. Both his words and his actions bear witness that he is the son of God. And that's basically what he's telling them. Look, if you don't believe what I say, at least believe what I'm doing. And my works bear witness to what I'm saying. But he knows they don't believe, and he gives them the reason they don't believe. You see it there? The reason you don't believe is because you're not one of my sheep. So here, again, we see the clear teaching from the Bible concerning the sovereignty of God and salvation. The decisive cause of whether we believe or not is this. We're one of his sheep. There's no other way. You believe because you're a sheep. Your believing doesn't make you a sheep. You're totally dependent on God. We, you and me, we're all dead in our sins and dependent on a life-giving Christ, the Messiah. We get our eternal light, you and I, by the sovereign grace of God. Before this, we're just slaves of sin and flesh. Jesus' sheep hear his voice. He knows them. They believe him, and they follow him. Jesus gives them eternal life, and they will never perish. He said in verse 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And here in verses 28 and 29, he's basically saying, look, no wolf can come and snatch them out of his hand. No wolf can come and take them. No thief can come and take them. No robber can come and take them. You can't even wander out of his hand. He has you. God has you. Jesus has nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Absolutely nothing. It's the same message we read at the end of Romans chapter 8. Not a thing in this world, brothers and sisters, can separate you and me from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Always remember that. Always. As I tell you, there will be times in your life when you are down in that valley of deep darkness and the shadow of death, and you feel like you're just all alone in this world. And it's in that moment that you are tightly in the hand of Jesus. And he has you. And you got to hold on to that. You got to hold fast to that. You got to cling to that truth because you may not be feeling it. There are oftentimes we feel, and I talk to people, and they're like, but, you know, I don't think God hears my prayers. God's not answering my prayers. I feel like I'm so alone. Those feelings are not the truth. 
the truth is Jesus has you in his hand. That is when he is carrying you. So we cling to that truth. Nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Our salvation is eternally secure. When you have it, you cannot lose it. You are a sheep. You always will be. And he is the good shepherd. I was reminded of this. Uh, I got this email this week from the Voice of the Martyrs. And I'm like, wow, this is just a perfect illustration of this teaching and this truth. There's this pastor, this pastor Marito. And I'll just read you uh, what the email says. And it's got this, you know, pictures, just terrible pictures. It's hard to see, but, you know, this, this is his village being burned, his house being burned, uh, his village being attacked. He lost everything, literally. He ran with just the clothes on his back to flee. On a spring day in 2020, Islamist insurgents in Mozambique gathered everyone in Pastor Matito's village to ask them a single question. What is your religion? But this is true. This really happens. And it could happen right here. And when and if it does, I pray we have the strength Pastor Matito has, faith. Those who answered Christian were decapitated, and pastors and their families were killed in even more torturous ways. In all, 70 villagers were killed before the insurgents reportedly raised an Islamic flag and declared the establishment of Sharia law. Pastor Matito and his family managed to flee with several other families in his village. Fearing for their lives, they hid in the bush for more than a month. Ongoing attacks in the region have driven more than 800,000 people, both Christians and nominal Muslims, farther south, where they now live in camps for displaced people. So what, what you might see in the news going on with Ukraine is, is going on all over the world. You know, our media just cares a lot more about Ukraine than Mozambique. This stuff happens all over the world everywhere. Although traumatized by the extreme violence they have witnessed and the losses they have suffered, Matito and other pastors continue to serve Christ by serving their neighbors. They help distribute food to the hungry. They share the gospel with displaced Muslims. They show Christians how to use their new solar-powered audio Bibles. That's pretty cool. And they lead worship services for those living in the camps. It reminds me of the Apostle Paul, chained to the walls of Philippi, singing hymns and praising the Lord. He's not out having a pity party. Woe is me. They burned everything. They took everything. Might as well just eat worms and die. <laughs> he's worshiping the Lord and he's leading others to do the same. Amid the heartbreak, heartbreak of losing Christian neighbors in his village, as well as losing his home. Pastor Matito perseveres in his new environment because he is certain God is still in control. Now listen to what he says. This is a person who has, has lost everything. This is his quote. Try not to cry. What could separate me from God, Matito? 
to us. Death? No. The war? No. So of course I will continue to serve my God. Because he gave himself, I will always give myself. The people out there, I need to give them hope and counsel and my testimony. I have lost everything just like them. When I fled, I left my food and my house was burned down. But Jesus was not cut off from me. He was not burned out of me. So I continue to encourage and serve. Wow. That's, that's what this passage gets to. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Always remember that. When the roof is gone and the house is gone, when the wind blows away your halo with all your cares, when the sea drowns your reputation, Christ is holding you in his hands. Cling to that. So he tells them, Nothing can snatch them out of my hand. Nothing can snatch them out of the Father's hand. Then he drops the bomb on them there in verse 30. Verse 30. I and the Father are one. That's the atomic bomb just dropped right there. I mean, boom. And they're, they are reeling from it. Oh, my. You can imagine that. The rage and the anger, the hate they have in their hearts towards that. That's, that's the bomb drop right there. It's really similar to what he told them in John 8, 58, when he said, before Abraham was, I am. He's telling them that he is God. The statement echoes the fundamental confession of Judaism from Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. I and the Father are one. For Jesus to be one with the Father, yet distinct from him, is a claim to be God. He's not just saying here that he and God are homies, that they are bros, that they are like one another. Or the things that he does are like the things God does. Or he is in agreement with God. They're aligned. Not just saying these things. Or we're on the same wavelength with each other. We got the same vibe. Not saying that. (laughs) Not at all. If that were the case, the Jews wouldn't have been so eager to pick up stones and, and kill him. Right, you can see from their reaction, they understand what he is saying. And also when he says that I and the Father are one, he isn't just making a theological claim to deity that theologians and scholars should be interested in and take note of. This truth right here in this verse, I and the Father are one, this is, this is vital to our faith. 
It's foundational to our faith. And the purpose here is to comfort all of those who believe that you can never lose your salvation because Jesus is God. He is the Almighty. He is the Good Shepherd. You are eternally secure. And I want this to just sink in right now. Because I do talk to many people who are just not sure. You know, I'm not sure. I, I think I might have lost my salvation. I'm just really not sure if I'm saved. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. And we say this all the time. You know, you can know that you know that you know. You know separate the facts from the feelings in those moments. You may have this feeling of uneasiness and anxiousness. The fact doesn't change. You believe in Jesus. You are saved. You are his sheep. He has you. Whether you feel like it that moment or not. You are saved. You are in his hand. He is God. He cannot lose you. He will not lose you. You follow the good shepherd. You are eternally secure. Because Jesus has you in his hand, and Jesus is God Almighty. Trust that. Believe that. And it's, it's this belief that Jesus is God and is worthy of our worship. It's really what separates Christianity from all the other religions of the world. Talk to uh, a Muslim. They will tell you Jesus is a good prophet. Talk to a Buddhist. They'll say, oh, yes, Jesus was a good teacher. Talk to a Hindu. They would say, oh, yes, Jesus was a good man, a good teacher. The Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses who call themselves Christian in different ways, they also deny his deity. You will dig into it deeper and you'll see that. On the surface, they sound a lot like us. You start peeling back the onion a little bit. Oh, this Jesus, he's really not fully God. You'll get to that. So be careful. And it matters because if Jesus is not God, then he has no power to lay down his life and take it up again. So, so this, this is central. I mean, this isn't one of those things where, oh, okay, yeah, I can, I can roll with that. Maybe he wasn't fully God. Then just play this out. If Jesus isn't fully God, then he has no power to lay down his life and take it up again. If he didn't take up his life and rise from the dead, then there's no resurrection from the dead. And if there's no resurrection from the dead, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. See, this is how, this how that plays out. It's vitally important. If Christ did not raise from the dead, then your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Those who have passed away believing have perished. And we, of all people, are to be most pitied, the Apostle Paul said. So it is believing in Jesus as God and worshiping him as such that we have eternal life and the hope of the assurance of our salvation in him. We worship one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And so we see the Pharisees' response to this, verse 31, kill him. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. 
You know, I wonder too if they said, you know, I think it's one of the feasts. Could be Jesus is going to come to town. Make sure we got extra rocks around because we're going to need them, guys. Because they're always handy, right? It's like, they just got stones right there. We're ready. You know, like Jesus is in town. Make sure we got the full shipment of the rocks ready to go. Pick up stones again to stone. <clears throat> This isn't the first time we've seen this happen. Pick up stones again to kill him. Verse 32. Now Jesus answers them. I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? Now he's not going to just stand there. It's not his time yet. So he's not just going to stand there and say, yep, go ahead. Not, not yet. So he gets, he's firing back a little bit here. Which of these are you stoning me for? Healing the blind, are you going to kill me? For making the lame walk, is that what you're stoning me for? For making the deaf to hear, making the blind see even, is that worthy of being stoned to death? Then the Jews answer back, verse 33, it's not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. So this answer, this answer shows their intellectual understanding of Jesus and their total lack of faith. They understand intellectually what he's claiming to be. And we read in other passages, the demons even know who Jesus is and they shudder, right? They have no faith at all. So not for any good work, but because you being a man, make yourself God. That's the kicker right there. You being a man, make yourself God. They do not believe in Jesus as God at all. They see him only as an insane, demon-possessed man who believes himself to be God, and they want him dead. That's how we deal with people like him. Kill him. And so Jesus answers them, verse 34. Is it not written in your law? I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I'm doing, if I'm not doing them, my father, do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. So he refers to this psalm. And by reference to this psalm that he quotes, Jesus proves to the Jews that when he calls himself the son of God, he did not blaspheme God. And so let me paraphrase. I'm going to try to paraphrase what he's saying here. Because I had to read this like a lot of times before it started to sink in. I don't even know that I fully understand it even now standing here trying to explain it to you. I'm doing the best I can. But here's my paraphrase. In Psalm 82... 
unjust and unholy men in power at the time the psalm was written are referred to as gods and sons of the Most High due to their positions of power in the world. You can go read Psalm 82. And if the scripture, which is of supreme authority and cannot be broken, can refer to these unjust and unholy men in this way, calling them sons of God and gods, then why do you say that I am blaspheming? That's what Jesus is saying. Why do you say I am blaspheming? Because I say that I am the son of God. When it's clear to see that I have been set apart by the father and sent into the world to do his right and holy and that's how he responds to them and it was the perfect necessary response because he completely shuts them up they have no answer for it and they put down their rocks and they just try to arrest him instead of fire <laughs> right so he's got them and they know it so they drop their stones and they're just trying to arrest him at this point, but he escapes. I'd love to see that scene, right? Because they're all there, they're all around him, they got their rods. It's like, how does he get out of it? It's almost like, you know, did he turn on invisible mode or something like superheroes do? And like, uh, dude, he's just gone, where'd he go? Because somehow he gets out of there. And they all wanted to arrest him and even kill him. Like, how did he do that? That must have been really cool to see. So he's gone. And this is, we see this happen at other times in the temple too, right? Where they try to try to get him and then he eludes their grasp. He's, he's just gone. He, he's out. Love to see that. So he escapes. Then we'll finish the chapter. Verse 40. He went away again across the Jordan to a place, to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. Many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Now, well, why add these verses to the end of the chapter? I mean, John could have easily ended the chapter with the confrontation of the Jews and the focus of their unbelief. Why insert this strange reference to Jesus leaving to go across the Jordan to where John the Baptist had been baptizing. And I'm really glad that this is here. I'm really glad the chapter ends this way. I think the point here is that despite the unbelief of the Jews, the religious leaders of the day, many did believe in Jesus and were saved. These people, they, they weren't listening to what the Pharisees had to say and what the Jews had to say. They, they, they were sheep, and they heard the good shepherd's voice, and they came. And that's what we're seeing here. He did no miracles there that are noted. Notice that. He's out there where John was baptizing. No mention of blind being healed or the deaf hearing or any of these things, any lame being healed. No miracles there. Just his sheep hearing the voice of the good shepherd and believing in him. 
So the question today is what about you? What about you? Kids, young ones, boys and girls, what about you? A lot of you are here because mom and dad make you come. <laughs> I know it. But what about you? Is Jesus just this insane, demon-possessed, wacko guy? Or is he really God? Is he one with the Father? Is he worthy of your worship? Do you believe in him? Do you trust him? Do you hear his voice as it's coming through my feeble vocal cords? Are you coming to him? It's your choice. Is he just a man, a good teacher, a prophet? Some of you may haven't even really thought about this in any kind of depth. I know how it is. We just kind of go through our routines. Church is just one of those routines, you know, prayers before meals, just one of those routines. We're just kind of going with the flow. What are you going to do with Jesus? What are you doing with him? These things are written that you may believe. And that by believing, you may have abundant and eternal life in his name. So I pray, young and old in this room, that we will believe in Jesus, that we will trust in the good shepherd, that, that we will rest in him as he makes us lie down in the green pastures, as he leads us beside the quiet waters of rest for our souls. Our souls will be restored. We will trust in him. We will rest in him, the good shepherd. Knowing that we can never be snatched out of his hand. Amen.